0: Good morning again. I am extremely grateful, once again, to be able to preach God's word to his people through the power of his Holy Spirit. Uh, Very exciting. Um, It's it's just a blessing. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24, Acts chapter 24. Last week, we went through the entire 23rd chapter, which is highly unusual for us, Um, but uh, and we're not going to do a full chapter this week, but uh, I know, but we're still going to start at verse 1. Of chapter twenty four. So while we're turning there, and uh, and while the kids are finding the ten bingo pictures that are hidden in this slide, um, I'm gonna get the treasure chest out so you guys can see it. Um, while y'all are doing that, I'm gonna take you through a quick review of what we discussed last week, and then uh, give an introduction to today's message. So you may remember in chapter twenty three that Paul was he was before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and a plot was made against his life. And so he was transported under heavy guard to another town. And and Paul was supposed to defend himself in a a trial under Felix, okay, who was the the governor of the region. And so so that's where we pick up in chapter 29. But what we're going to see today is a glimpse into a a completely biased, bogus, truth-deficient witch trial of the Apostle Paul. And I think that it's very... Very extra important, I should say, it's extra, extra, very extra, extra, very important for us to pay attention to this passage, because uh, while much has changed in the last two millennia, people are the same. People are the same in so many ways today as they were 2,000 years ago. Many of the problems that worldly people have with outspoken Christians haven't changed much. And the way that that people perceive us and our words and actions are still very similar to the first century. Now, likewise, most of us have a lot to learn about how to properly respond to people's perception of us. And Paul does an amazing job in this passage of doing that very thing. And so so today we're going to take an in-depth look at what some people thought and said about the Apostle Paul and whether those things are true And then we're going to see how he responded to being vilified. You may ask, why? Why Why would this be important for 21st century Christians to pay attention to? I I was considering reading something to you guys today that occurred on Facebook. I'm not going to. I'm just going to very briefly describe it before I go on. Uh, On a, a guitar um, page that I'm on. It's called Cheap Awesome Guitars. <laughs> that I'm on on Facebook. Um, somebody apparently posted something, um, and I, I didn't see what it was, but it, it apparently had some nudity in it. And so a man posted on there. This is this is a man who I went to his his profile page, and the the background behind his profile picture says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe." Okay. So this man posted, and he said, "Well." Uh, I just saw nudity on this page. I guess it's time for me to leave. And by the time I got on there, 135 other comments had already been made. I didn't read all of them. I read dozens of them. Um, they were so far as to say um, you know, to, to say that he wasn't, you know, his wife must have been reading over his shoulder or, you know, oh, come on, where are the pictures? I'd like to see all that. These, all these things like this, people making comments about, uh, would you would you like pictures of your wife on there? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, just awful, horrible, tacky, immoral things. And so I posted on there in his defense. And I said, you know, Jesus Christ said that a man who looks at a woman for the purpose of lusting is committing adultery in his heart. I said, y'all have a nice day. And when I woke up this morning, I had a whole bunch of comments to my post. And I responded to every single one of them, just so you guys know. And I did it very politely. And, uh, and, and it, it's amazing to me. This is just social media. Now, it's true. Most people will say things on social media they don't say to you in person. I don't think most of these guys would say, you know, would say things to this, this man who posted the original thing in, you know, if they were in his face, but they might. And it's, it's moving more that direction. That's where I'm going with this, okay? There are other Christians on that page, I can guarantee you. I got a few thumbs up. On my post, a whole lot of uh, of laughing faces, a whole lot of mockery. It's amazing to me how dark the world is becoming and how chicken Christians are to speak out. That is not in my notes. But it's true. We are being too silent, friends. Come back. The reason that it's so important for 21st century Christians to pay attention to this is because, again, people are the same today as they were back then. Our society and the world in general is becoming more hostile, increasingly vitriolic against Christians. And we have to, to understand this, That and faithful believers in particular, not just Christianity, but believers. We, we have to understand that there are multiple lies in this culture that we have to contend with around us. There's lies that minimize sin. There are lies that pervert God's created order. There are lies that reject Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. And most of us are familiar with these, and they're often confronted and debunked from pulpits across the nation. Not enough pulpits. But there is another whole set of lies that I think needs to be taken down, dismantled, ripped apart, before some people are going to listen to the truth. And I'm referring to the lies that people believe about us. The lies people believe about Christians. Are you aware that there are some lies that are commonly believed in our culture about Christians? You're like, duh. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, we're aware of that. Pretty much anybody with eyes and ears knows that's true. So, but instead of spending our time and energy to prove them wrong, church folks tend to do one of three things. Either we attack in kind, which usually proves their point, Right? or we withdraw and refuse to interact, which isn't helpful by saying silent, or or much worse, some try to avoid persecution by siding with the world against the Christians that don't compromise on God's word. Now, friends, in today's passage, God shows us a third way through the Apostle Paul. We are shown a fourth way, maybe I should say to deal with, with being misrepresented. I think it's worth learning. It's worth, it's worth us trying to inculcate this in ourselves in order that we, it, we might find ourselves one of these days in a, in a similar situation. Just be aware of that. You know, it's, it's a lot more likely now. And, and it's possible that one day soon we're going to be in a situation trying to have a discussion with someone who is deceived about who we are and what we stand for. You know, a, a dear sister sent a tag me in a post last night About the FBI has been apparently sending agents undercover into churches looking for you know extreme Christian behavior or something like that. And my response is send them! Praise God, let's get some feds in here. Maybe they'll get saved. You know they're gonna hear the gospel. You know, send them. Guys, we are we are under attack. We're not feeling it yet as as, as strongly as we will be, but we are under attack. So we're gonna pray. Then we're going to begin. Father God, I just ask in Jesus' name, for each person here, that you will help us to be good soil. God, there's, uh, there's such a lack of, of, of conviction and courage in our culture. Um, people are, are so quick, Father, to, to join a, a rising tide of, of ignorance and even downright uh, just anti-Christ stupidity, uh, pretending to be a gender that they're not, or, um, or saying that, that Jesus would have worked for Planned Parenthood, just disgusting things like that, God, it, It makes me me angry, it makes me sad, but I'm thankful, Father, that you have given us the right uh, to be your children through faith, and I ask, God, that you will help us to shine as lights in this dark world. Father, help us to learn from Paul's example today, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Acts 24, starting in verse 1, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down. You remember Ananias? He was a really, really bad guy. He had no problem with cruelty, bribery. Uh, bribery. Anyway, Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Ioana, no, no, he said, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude but to detain you no further. I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. This this is a whole lot of flattering language, isn't it? You know, apparently flattery was was a key part of coming before a a powerful civic authority if you wanted him to rule in your favor. So what Tertullus is doing here is he's greasing the skids in in a typical lawyer fashion. But the funny thing is, if you read what the historian uh, Tacitus said about Felix, he was a terrible person, okay? And in most... It's very likely that he didn't actually provide peace or reforms or kindness. Uh, in fact, a lot of seditions happened under his rule because he was just not a good guy. Okay. Now, Felix and his brother—I um, can't remember his name at the moment—they they both used to be slaves of Claudius Caesar's uh, mom. Okay, I know that sounds weird, but but after they were freed, Claudius Caesar really liked Felix, and so he decided he should be a governor. And it sounds really similar to the story of Joseph in Egypt, you know, from a slave to governor, except Felix was not full of integrity and godliness. Felix instead was very cruel and greedy and lustful. And so Tertullus was probably just trying to butter him up. But anyway, after this fawning introduction, he begins to hurl accusations against Paul. Now, for the people who've been keeping up uh, <coughs> excuse me, with the story, uh, We've read what actually happened in the previous chapter, and so we know. We have some insight into whether these accusations are true, if any of them are, right? Or if Tertullus is just repeating falsehoods. So we're going to read what he says. He says, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him by examining him yourself you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. It says, the Jews also joined in this charge, affirming that all these things were so. That's a lot of accusations. Starting off with calling Paul a plague. There's <laughs> a pretty serious personal attack, right? I mean, paul Paul's unknown, except by reputation, to these people, and Tertullus is jumping right, he's impugning him right off the bat with a statement that's meant to poison the well before they even get into the real charges. Okay? By calling him a plague, Tertullus isn't just in, you know, engaging in name-calling. He's, P- P- Paul is being accused of having a toxic character. A toxic character. And I, I hope you'll forgive the word toxic. I know it's really overused in our culture, but it, it's a good word because most of us understand what it means. When a person is thought to be toxic... Okay? it automatically calls into question anything else that they say or do, right? Does that make sense? If a person is presumed to be poisonous, that casts a shadow over all of their intentions in every situation. Their motivation is always gonna be assumed to be wicked or, or selfish, at least harmful, right? A similar word or an example of a similar word approach today um, might be to paint someone as a racist. Now, despite the fact that just about everyone knows that racism is despicable and it's totally unbefitting a Christian and that, that anyone, who, anyone who, who is a racist, that's, that's pretty much inexcusable and, and despite the fact that very few people in America today actually fit the classic definition of racist, people still accuse one another of that like that's, like that's your trump card, you know? start losing the argument, oh, well, you're a racist. You know, if I can find some flimsy reason to accuse you, then I win the argument. At least that's how people seem to think it works. Well, in the first century, you know, people like they do today, people tried to make their opponent look bad even before the argument starts. And then Tertullus accused Paul of stirring up riots among the Jews throughout the world. And In making this claim, he's saying that Paul is also guilty of toxic behavior. Because being guilty of toxic character is, unfortunately, not against the law. So there had to be some actions that Paul could be accused of in order to make it to court. Of course, rioting isn't, you know, it's not a good thing. It's against the law back then, uh, as it is now, although back then it was actually prosecuted. Um, And people who caused riots were disturbing the peace and the tranquility of a city, and so they were considered bad folks. So if Paul had actually been stirring up a riot, that might have been a valid complaint. But was he? We'll get back to that, okay? The next thing this lawyer says, actually, it needs a little background. When referring to Paul as a member of the sect of the Nazarenes, he clearly means it to sound derogatory. It's similar to how in the secular world today, people might view the word Christian. Although special hatred is reserved for evangelical Christians, or even more so, fundamentalist Christian. You know, we we should remember that Nazareth was viewed as a really uncool place by many people in Judea. Uh, As Nathaniel said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And yet, after his death and resurrection, we see Christ often referred to by name as Jesus of Nazareth because something very good came from there or rather someone, very good. And being connected with him is a badge of honor despite the ridicule of the word. So anyway, for Tertullus to bring up the fact that Paul was part of the Nazarene sect, that was another attempt to, to discredit him simply by association, okay? But then he mentions a specific crime that Paul had allegedly committed. You, he, you remember this, he, he claims that Paul has profaned the temple. And do you remember how that rumor started? Anybody from last week? How? He brought a Gentile uh, with him around the city, but not into the temple. But it was presumed that he had brought this Gentile into the temple. Okay? Now, so so because people had seen Paul with this Gentile, they just assumed with no evidence that Paul had brought him into the temple, which was against the law. And there's actually a a pretty good of, of irony in this accusation, besides the fact that it wasn't true. Um, it seems that for a theocracy, the Jews were actually pretty tolerant of varying views among their elites, right? We know this because the two main groups that we read about in Scripture are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're polar opposites when it comes to some major doctrinal issues. And so, the thing that the Jews got most upset about here, uh, about Christian, and remember, this is the non-believing Jews. There are lots and lots of believing Jews. Okay, But the non-believing Jews, what made them so upset about Christianity wasn't that there was a new sect, or that they believed the Messiah had already come, which he had. Rather, it was that they believed that Gentiles could be God's people too. That was the biggest problem that they had. So since Gentiles weren't allowed in the temple, at least in traditional Judaism, they, they incorrectly assumed that Paul had violated that rule and they were hoping to bust him for it. But even so, Tertullus didn't say Paul brought a gentile into the temple. He said, but he profaned the temple. Which could have been anything, that could have been anything up to and including sacrificing a pig on the altar, right? They just want to give him a, 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 a label for this crime and make it as, as bad as they could possibly make it sound. And on top of all these points, he wraps up the accusations with the statement that Felix would be able to figure out all this on his own by examining Paul, implying that Paul had this, like, aura of obvious evil around him. You know, it'd be really, really apparent to anybody who was looking at him that he was just malevolent. So, to be certain, this is is both an ancient technique and a modern one, right? I mean, any good prosecuting attorney is going to tell the jury what they want the jury to figure out based on the evidence. And most of the time, in our society today, when a criminal case makes it all... All the way to court, there's at least some substance to it. But in Paul's case, most of these accusations were were just bogus. They were hot air, they were made up. So, and now now is the part, now that we've seen what what Tertullus says, we get to look at Paul and how he so perfectly politely dismantled these lies that had been leveled against him. And he validated the one thing that wasn't false. So he responds to each of the accusations with his own assertions, which are true and correct, unlike many of the charges against him. So for the next few minutes, friends, I want you to pay close attention to how Paul responds, because these these techniques will be good for each one of us to have in our own repertoire whenever we find ourselves in a similar situation, which I believe is coming. So picking up in verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Okay, so right up front, Paul shows a completely different personality than the one that had been attributed to him by Tertullus, right? As opposed to being toxic, you know, poisonous and arrogant and bitter, Paul is cheerful in making his defense. I'm going to say this, it's hard to convince people that someone is a terrible person when they are interacting with you in a way that is genuinely friendly and sincere. Just think about that. Next time you're having a conversation with a person that disagrees with you. I think all of us need to recognize this. We need to adopt a similar mentality whenever we're facing opposition for our Christian faith or our Christian morals. It's not just for the person that's making accusations, okay? It's also for everyone who's watching from the peanut gallery. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody that's overhearing. The conversation. Everybody that's too afraid to say anything, but that's sitting back and watching your conversation on Facebook or Twitter or wherever you are. When you are being kind, in spite of someone treating you like a jerk, it gives those who are watching a sense of who's really at fault. Especially when they're obviously trying to bait you, right, into losing your cool, and instead you keep your your temper, you refuse to do so. After a while, it becomes... It becomes apparent even to the biased observers that something isn't right. So, one of the most prevalent lies that gets told about Christians today, since we're not usually called a plague, is that we are bigots. We are called bigots. That word is a catch-all for us when we are opposed to any sort of sinful lifestyle or behavior. We're called bigots. Now, of course, there's lots of variations on this theme. Uh, I call it um, fill-in-the-blankophobia, uh, where they accuse Christians of being uh, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, a whole host of other stuff, even though the word phobia literally means fear of. Okay? They say it's actually a form of hate to object to lifestyles or behaviors that are against Scripture. This is a very reductionistic and dishonest approach. It really is, because what they're doing is, is they're acting as though a person is reduced entirely to their sexual mores or their mental illness or their national origin or their religion. Uh, you know, To say that is actually insulting to that person. They're more than just that thing. It's a false dichotomy, too, to say you can't love someone and simultaneously disagree with what they do. So how are we to handle these false labels that we get as Christians? Here's the thing. It's hard to make the, accus- the accusation of, of hatred stick whenever you're doing everything in your power to treat everyone with the same respect and kindness whether you believe that they're right or not. Treat everyone with grace and mercy whether you agree with them or not. You know, in 1 Corinthians 5, we learned that our expectations, God's expectations for Christians ought to be very high when it comes to our behavior. We should be living in a holy and godly way, okay? And and so we need to understand that that's true for Christians, but not for non-Christians. We shouldn't expect non-Christians to live the way Christians are expected to live. You know, we have an obligation even to practice church discipline, whether professing Christians are living in gross immorality without repentance. But we have no such mandate about living among pagan people or people of different faiths. We should love and accept them as, as, as human beings and as just as valuable as we are, while at the same time modeling Christ like behavior and taking opportunities to, to teach those people that they, like us, need a Savior so that they can be forgiven their sins. Anyway, uh, as the late, great Patrick Swayze said in the modern classic Roadhouse, (laughs) always be nice, okay? I'd take it a step further and say always be kind because nice is about being polite, but kindness truly cares about other people. So next we see that Paul renounces any involvement with the writing as he should because he didn't do that. In fact, Paul is exceptionally peaceable in Scripture. And every indication in the Bible is that we should be too. We should be peaceable people. When we do that, we are displaying maturity and godly wisdom. And the Lord blesses those who are peaceable. In fact, Christ himself said, blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Oh, somebody better speak up. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's two, well done. I'll pay you later. No. (laughs) Jesus Brother James wrote that wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. It's the very next thing. First pure and then peaceable. Gentle. Open to reason. Full, listen, full of mercy and good fruits. Impartial. In other words, not showing favoritism. And sincere. And this next line is a promise, it's amazing. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We are called to be peaceable. In fact, in Romans 12, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) excuse me, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, that's pretty important, live peaceably with all. And then after instructing Christians to avoid taking vengeance, then Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love that. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And yet we're so, we're so bad at that. It's one of the greatest sentences in Scripture, but we're not good at it. My, my first roommate in college was such a redneck. He was a great guy, but he, he, one day he said, Hey, hey, Mark, why don't we go out to a bar and knock a few down? And I said, dude, we signed a thing when we got here that said we're not going to drink alcohol while we're students. And he goes, no, not drinks, pagans. <laughs> I was like, that is not what we're called to do, friends. Okay? We're not not to produce chaos and unrest, picking fights everywhere we go. Instead, we make peace by planting ourselves and helping others to be planted very solidly on the bedrock of God's truth. Make no mistake, we are not called to be peaceable at the expense of truth, but for the sake of truth. Because again, when you keep your head in a discussion, when you, when you know there's, there's actually spiritual warfare going on all around you, it exposes their lack of moral authority when they lose their cool and you don't. You know, something, something as simple as, as, as gently offering an alternative to a secular narrative being promoted can, can result in pushback. It can even result in people responding with, with anger against you. But when those who are in the wrong pile on, if you continue to be gracious and caring throughout the conversation, it disarms your opponents. And it reveals the superiority of Christ in you to anyone who's watching from the outside. So bear that in mind, okay? Let's continue with Paul's defense. Uh, Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. In other words, it's not true. There's not any evidence. And so, because it's not true. Paul says, but this, (coughs) excuse me, <coughs> Excuse me. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So here we see Paul responding to the one thing that Tertullus accused him of that was true, right? But while it was introduced, by Tertullus as a slur, Paul wears it proudly. He is a Christian. He's not ashamed of it. Paul, in very short fashion, indicates his faith is in Jesus Christ. And he says, he lets them know his faith in Jesus Christ is warranted even though he is Jewish, because it's based on the very scriptures that he and all the rest of the Jews hold dear. Now, while Paul doesn't expressly share the gospel here, he alludes to it strongly with the reference to, to the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Because remember, friends, Jesus Christ is God the Son, a member of the triune God of Paul's forebears. He, he fulfilled every single promise in the law and in the prophets. He, he's born the Son of God. He died as the payment for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that we might be forgiven And then he was buried and then he rose again also according to the scriptures. He is our hope. He is the hope of all those who put their faith in him. But the warning, this warning about both the the just and the unjust rising from the dead for judgment, it means that this good news requires a response from those who hear. I'm going to say that again. The presentation of the good news requires a response from those who hear. Paul is not just admitting he's a Christian. He's also claiming that his way is the true way, which fully agrees with Jesus' statement in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life, he says, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Friends, we need to learn We need to learn to appreciate and accept that sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ must be a part of our personal interaction with others. It needs to be a consistent part of our lives. And when they point fingers and they go, Oh, you're one of those, then you go, A follower of Christ? I sure am. A little more every day. Wear it proudly. Don't be ashamed. Let's keep going. Verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. There's that clear conscience thing again. We've talked about that a couple of times in the last few months, so I won't do it here, but it's real important. Uh, Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they, the, the mob, found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. Okay, now this is kind of simplistic, but it's important. Paul Paul didn't (coughs) want Felix to have a wrong idea about him, okay? And since he had been falsely accused of a specific crime, you know, profaning the temple, he chose to address it. Now, some some people are going to point to the example of Christ who didn't answer the false charges against him, right? You remember this, right? Jesus didn't respond. And so they will champion that as the proper way to always respond to accusations. But I would like to point out, that Christ was fulfilling prophecy from Isaiah 53, which says, As a lamb to the slaughter, so he did not open his mouth. And Jesus Christ was planning to give his life as the atoning sacrifice to pay for our sins. Paul was not in the same circumstances, and neither are we. Okay? My death will not atone for anyone's sin, and neither will yours. And while we're part of the prophecy in Isaiah 53, we're the ones who, like sheep, have gone astray, and we're the many for whom he died to pay for our transgressions. So so that said, I think we can look to Paul as an example of how to behave in a similar situation. If we are treated to false accusations, I believe we have every right to dispel slander against us. Now, again, I'm not referring to vengeance, okay? We never have the right to respond in kind. It's very clear in Scripture. Vengeance is the Lord's, not ours, okay? But we can't expose the lies. And when we expose the lies, we thus expose the liars for who they are. Now, unfortunately, this is not an ironclad defense, as it's often been said. Truth sounds like hate to those who hate truth. So so even if we're correct in our defense, it doesn't mean we're going to be victorious in the short term, okay? But we are obligated, friends, We have a duty to honor God by being people of integrity. And if our loyalty to Christ is known, then refuting false accusations can actually glorify God. Does that make sense? After all, that's the whole point of this. Paul's not defending himself for his own sake. He's defending himself for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Lord's reputation. That ought to be our priority as well. Now this this is why being cheerful and peaceable are such an important part of our defense, which Paul, again, shows perfectly. So let's finish his, his defense statement. They found me in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. And he says, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else... Let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And you remember about that. Um, He said that out loud and it caused the Pharisees and the Sadducees to start arguing with each other. You remember that? Okay, that's the one thing that Paul did that could even be construed, and it would have to be kind of misconstrued, as being the cause of all this, this tumultuous activity by this mob. So we see in this last sentence, Paul is even willing to give a concession. You know, he, he did one thing that might be misconstrued as causing trouble, but in general, he's saying that the people who should have been there to accuse him, they've all it off on other people, right? And he says, he, he's like, I am, I am credibly innocent of all these charges. You know, and I think this showed Felix that rather than being an obvious evil, Paul's life was overflowing with obvious grace. And that's what we ought to have, obvious grace. You know, notice he he didn't try to destroy his accusers. He didn't treat them as subhuman. He simply and respectfully stands up for himself and stands up for his faith. And that, brothers and sisters, that is exactly what I think we're supposed to do. Our lives at all times should show obvious evidence of grace for others. You know what the hardest thing that I think Jesus ever said to wrap your brain around is? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't think we are ever more like Jesus except when we love our enemies and pray for those who mistreat us. I'm reminded of a sentence from Acts chapter 6 when Stephen was dragged before the council, and he joyfully shared the gospel with them before being stoned to death. Luke writes, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's cool. How do you respond when you're falsely accused of being a bigot or a philanthropic phobe or, or, or being hateful? Do you Do you give them more ammunition with your response, or do you honor God by responding in truth spoken in love? Let me make the question really short. When you're in those circumstances, do you have the face of an angel or the devil? I believe the teaching of Scripture is that Christians must employ the gentleness and the graciousness of Christ in all of our interactions, but we should also defend ourselves when it's appropriate for the sake of our witness. We should do nothing to drag the name of God through the mud, but nor should we stand idly by while someone else does it. You know, it, it's been said that sometimes we need to stand up for God. For God certainly stood up for us. Huh? More to the point, he, he hung on a cross for us so that we might be forgiven. We need to remember that as it gets harder and harder to be a Christian in a warped and sinful world, we can also remember the dark of the night, the brighter the light as the stars shine. You know, we, we're told in Philippians We've been called to shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation as we hold out the word of life. That's what we're called to do. I want to wrap up uh, this sermon with the words of the Apostle Peter. It's a familiar passage. It's part of what we read earlier this morning. It was also uh, the passage that Dave unwittingly read in our elders meeting this morning. I'll tell you what, it happens so often. These things keep coming up. This is chapter 3 of Peter's first epistle, verses 14 through 16. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. That, that, friends, that is a promise. I'm going to say it again. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Did you hear that? Okay, you'll be blessed. And it's thanks to that promise that we can take heed to the rest of the passage. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart's honor, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a, there it is again, good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, that is a magnificent passage. It's well worth memorizing. But for today, when we close, I just want to give you a moment to write this concise paraphrase in your bulletin insert. Honor Christ by being ready to defend his truth with respect and gentleness. Honor Christ by being ready to defend his truth with respect and gentleness. If we are willing to do this, church, then God will faithfully spread his kingdom in the world. We will see his hand at work. He will use us to draw others to him. So, why don't we pray in closing. Father God, I thank you for your amazing grace. I thank you for your amazing mercy. Thank you for Jesus, who is the means through which you deliver all of this wonderful gift to us. Father, we thank you that your word promises us that our faith is uh, is is the means of or the mode of salvation by which Jesus uh, Jesus blood is applied to us? We thank you that it's by grace through faith, and it's not by anything that we can do, will do, or or could do. It, it's simply a gift. We thank you, Father, that you give us the opportunity to live by your grace through the power of your Holy Spirit and become more like Jesus, not because we're better than anybody else or anything like that, simply because. You have blessed us with your Holy Spirit who sanctifies us. We thank you that even though we are sinners, you call us saints. And scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is love. Thank you for your love. Help us to love the world around us. Help us not to get tired of of being hassled and insulted and instead just to, to bear with it joyfully, knowing, Father, that As we show a Christ-like attitude, there's a good chance that you might save someone through these these interactions that we have. God, we turn that over to you. We know that we don't save anybody, but you do. We just ask that you use us as good instruments. God, we want to be craftsmen tools. Help us to to do a a good work, Lord, in in Jesus' name, for your sake, that we might draw people in, Lord, or rather that your Holy Spirit might use us to draw people in. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. And y'all, if there's anybody here who has put their faith in Christ, I challenge you, I invite you, make that decision public. And I, I don't even like calling it a decision. There's so much more to it than just making a decision. But if you believe this morning that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, if you've never been immersed according to Scripture, today's your day. Today's your day. And if you've done all those things, but you say, you know, I, I just really have backslidden, I need prayers, today's your day. Maybe you just are looking for a church body to belong to. Today's your day.